I grew up high school, junior high, I was in Sebring, which is right in the center of the state. So yeah, I, I like going back. I broke down on I-4 two times. I and both times it was for a day. <laughs> I will not take that trip across the state. Uh, not fun. Which trip is it? Across Florida. Oh. I was doing work for a Good to go. All right, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll get started here. Likely other folks will start trickling in, but it is good to see you all here. We only have tonight and one more night left. It's hard to believe it's gone by that quick. There is a new handout in the back. Did everybody? Did everybody get the handout? Got the new handout for tonight? All right. I hate I hate interrupting everybody's good time visiting. So it's our latest handout. Should take you to the page 79. I think is the last page. And if I'm not mistaken, we're going to start on page 70 tonight. 70. 70. Yeah, 70. I believe is where we left off. Yep, so that was the end of last week's handout. And then there should be the new one in the back. It's handout 11 if you're pulling it from online. All right, let me just uh, open in a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, I'm glad to be here tonight. I'm grateful that you gave all of us uh, safety on the roads. You've blessed us with good health. Uh, we're especially... Uh, thankful for your son. We're grateful that he led his apostles and prophets to uh, record these words for us that we're going to study today. Uh, I pray that you'd help us to think very clearly about them. I pray that we would uh, not only understand them, but more importantly, be willing to submit to them, uh, apply them to our lives, and to gradually keep becoming more like our Lord Jesus. And we ask for your help in doing this in his name. Amen. All right, so we had left off chapter 13, uh, the paragraph that includes verses 1 through 5. Uh, Paul had been talking about the implications that the gospel has for our relationship to human government. That human government is actually a good that God has given us. Even an imperfect government is better than no government. They actually serve as God's uh, servants. Uh, so one of the implications of that is that they have the right uh, to um, exact capital punishment. I believe that's the last thing we were talking about. Uh, that's something that precedes the Mosaic Law. So even though we've said multiple times in this class that we're no longer underneath the Law of Moses, there are foundational things that predate Moses that, that still apply to us today. And the, uh, the principle that is in play here is the fact that we were created as God's image bearers. And so if we attack a fellow image bearer, it's actually an attack against God himself. And so 
Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, uh, refers to God delegating the authority to exact capital punishment to government. Um, and then we have an, ab an obligation then to do right, right? If, if the fear of God isn't enough for us to do right, then Paul says we should also remember that uh, human government exacts justice on behalf of God. Uh, his next paragraph there, he, he starts dealing with taxes. So verse 6, he says, This is also why you pay taxes. So you obey them because they're God's servants, and you also pay taxes because they're God's servants, uh, who give their full time to governing. So taxes were uh, just as unpopular then as they are now. It's, it's not like Paul was in a more pristine age where people just loved paying their taxes. We actually have some evidence that there was likely some, some protest and some unrest in Rome in the ballpark time that Paul is writing this letter to them. So it could have been a, a relevant hot topic, but it's something that applies at all times. That you know, When we pay our tax bill, as difficult as it sometimes is, it's actually our obligation to take care of and provide for, for God's servants. And then he moves right into our obligation to them, just to our obligation to, to everyone. Verse 7, uh, we, we're supposed to be characterized as people who don't leave debts outstanding. If we've borrowed money or if we owe money, then we should be people who are people of our word and fulfill our obligations. So he says in verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then he's going to move to verse 8, and he's going to say, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So in a sense, he's going back earlier into his passage, and he's repeating the the emphasis on love, the command to love one another, but also you can see what he did there. He also tied that in with the, the debt and obligation language that he had just referred to. So the only debt, I'm, I'm reading from that uh, second bullet point under a uh, paragraph that starts with verse 8, uh, the only debt that we should leave outstanding is the continuing debt to love one another. In this context, there's no indication that Paul's restricting this love to other believers. Instead, he's telling us that we have a debt or an obligation to love everyone. So what does that mean to have a debt towards everyone? And what does it mean when it refers to a continuing debt? Well, the other debts that we have, we should try to repay. This one we should also try to repay but we're never going to be actually able to do it. It's always going to be an outstanding debt, so to speak. Uh, this is how one early Christian paraphrased Paul's statement, and I thought this captured it really well. So we have the scripture verse on the top, a little bit of an interpretive paraphrase on the bottom. But Origen said, Let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love a debt which you should always be tempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. But then Paul, if you notice in that verse, the second line there towards the end, he's got that little word for in verse 8. So he's going to give you a reason. 
you know, why shouldn't we leave this kind of debt unpaid? It's because, he says here, love it fulfills the law. So Paul's examples in verse 9 are from the Ten Commandments. So as he goes through the different examples of the law, those are all uh, Ten Commandments. So it's pretty clear that he means law as in the Mosaic law. So in some sense, the Mosaic law is fulfilled when we love other people. Uh, even though Paul is very clear in other places that the Mosaic law is no longer in force, many of, many of its laws, including those listed here, have carried over into the new law of Christ. So if you look at those examples in verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. He, he's selectively choosing some of the Ten Commandments, and he's likely specifically choosing ones that he knows are still in force. They're not still in force because they're part of the Mosaic Law. They're still in force because even within the Mosaic Law, they reflected something that was older. These are things that have always been right and always, or have always been wrong for humans. All right? So we're at the top of page 71 if you're just joining us. And we're talking here about the paragraph that includes verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. And we have to wrestle through what does Paul mean that our love fulfills the law? What does he mean by that? Well, at the top of the page, I say there, at a minimum, Paul's point in the paragraph seems to be that genuine love for one's neighbor will ensure that all of the other laws are carried out as well. For example, you will not murder your neighbor, steal from him, covet his possessions, or commit adultery with his spouse if you truly love him. So if we're always trying to love our fellow humans, then all of those other laws would fall into place. So I think at minimum, Paul might be saying that. But he could also be going a little deeper than that. I say, however, the word fulfillment likely points to an additional truth. Believers who love, and here I'm quoting from Mu, who love others as they should bring to expression in actual life circumstances that the law of Moses was all along aiming at. They are no longer under the law of Moses, but their lives demonstrate its goal and are thus its culmination, even if imperfectly. So if the main point of the Mosaic law was always that we loved our God and we loved our fellow humans who were made in the image of God, even if we're outside of that law, if we're still fulfilling its original purpose, you could be fulfilling the law. No illustration is perfect, but I'll, I'll take a stab at an illustration, right? So imagine a child is, is learning how to ride a bicycle, right? And you have, you have training wheels, and the purpose of those training wheels are to keep them from toppling over, right? But even if those training wheels were removed, right, and they still go straight, they still are fulfilling the original purpose of those wheels, even though the wheels have now been removed. All right. For an imperfect people, the vast majority of who were unbelievers, unregenerate, the law of Moses was a, a corrective in their life. It kept them in check, and it did reveal God's will to them. 
But now that we've had the law of Moses removed from us, if we're still heading in the direction that it all along pointed to and wanted us to be following, then we are, in a sense, I think, what Paul's referring to, fulfilling the purpose of the law of Moses. Um, They are no longer, let me just read a little bit more from the end of that paragraph, they're no longer under the law of Moses, but their lives demonstrate its goal and are thus its culmination, even if imperfectly. Since our love prior to our glorification is incomplete, we may very well require other commandments to chastise us and to guide us, all right? So sometimes we do need something more specific than you should love your neighbor. Sometimes we do need to remind it that that means you can't kill him, you can't steal from him, you can't covet what belongs to him. We do need specific commands because our love is no longer, is, it's not yet complete, but the ultimate command is still to love. All right, any, any questions there about that paragraph or what he means by fulfilling the law? All right, well, then he moves into the the next paragraph, and he's going to try to sum all this up. So the next paragraph begins in verse 11, and he says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the question is, well, what does this point to? Is he just referring to what he just talked about? I think it's, it's better to see it as this is a kind of a conclusion to everything he's been talking about since chapter 12. All of these direct commands, exhortations, encouragements, these very practical things that he's been telling us, that are right implications of the gospel. You're supposed to do all of this, and his reason for this is that the nighttime that we live in is almost over, and the dawn is approaching. There's a daytime coming that's coming soon. So it's pretty clear here that he's using night to refer to this present evil age, and he's referring to the coming age when Jesus Christ returns as a dawning of a new light, a new age. And so he's saying now, even though you live in the darkness, start living as people of light. It's very similar to things he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So in verses 12, the second half there, 12b, and into verse 13, Paul plays on the analogy, and he describes specific sins commonly associated with the literal night, all right? So there's lots of different sins that he could have listed. He's not trying to list every sin possible. But since he's using this analogy, if you look there at those verses, he chooses specific sins that would be the types of things that people would do at nighttime when it was dark out. He calls these the deeds of darkness. And they include all sins, I think not just the ones he specifically mentions. As the entire section is made clear, believers are being called to the right affections and attitudes and not merely an avoidance of the things mentioned specifically in this verse. So what does he mean here when he says the day is almost here? Well, the arrival of God and his Messiah to judge the wicked 
and restore the world was described in the Old Testament as a day of the Lord. So over and over again in some of those Old Testament passages that I list there, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would return and he would wage a campaign to both judge his enemies and to restore and regather his people. And this campaign, this final battle, was referred to as his day. He would, he would have his day when he would vindicate himself and he would make this world right. And they would refer to this day as near, right around the corner, as something that could show up. So if something's very near, you should repent and be prepared for it. That was the message in the prophets. So I'll give you just two examples of this. So we don't go to the prophet Obadiah very often. So Obadiah, just he's just one little, what we would call a chapter, right? So he doesn't even really have chapters. So Obadiah, verses 15 through 17, he says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your head. So it's clearly talking about judgment, but when you get to the end of the passage, it says, but on Mount Zion will be my deliverance, or will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. So the, the day of the Lord always had these two aspects to it. For people who were uh, estranged from God because of their sins, it will always be a time of judgment. But for those who have been made right on the basis of Christ and what he's accomplished for them, it would be a time to be restored and regathered. So the different outcomes of the one day are based on our attitude towards Christ, our relationship towards Christ. But see the language of it's, it's near, same type of language in Zephaniah, another prophet we don't go to very often, but he says, the great day of the Lord is near. He says, near and coming quickly. And what they'll often do, they'll point to something in their immediate future some type of judgment that God was bringing in the immediate future, and they would compare that with what he's going to do on the final day. Since God is the author of all of history, since he's the one who plans everything that happens, his fingerprints are on history, so to speak, he's very capable of making parallel events so that things we see in the past foreshadow or types of things that come in the future there were times of judgment and deliverance in the past that the prophets got to see often, but they, I think, also consistently pointed forward to this great day of the Lord that was coming. And then, of course, when Jesus comes along, uh, he uses the same type of language. He refers to a day that will come suddenly. He likens it to a thief who shows up in the night. The apostle Paul, being aware of Jesus' teaching, he uses the same type of language. This should have been 1 Thessalonians 5 instead of 2 Thessalonians 5. If you were looking for 2 Thessalonians 5, you've been flipping for a while, right? It doesn't exist. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about the day of the Lord coming quickly like a thief. So that's, that's the image. We now live in a nighttime. There's going to be a coming day. That day could come any, at any moment, right? That's the constant expectation that you and I live with, that Jesus Christ will come suddenly without any kind of advanced warning, like a thief who just springs into the room. And because of that, we should be living like people who belong to the day. We should start getting rid of all those nighttime activities, so to speak, that we currently sometimes live with. So then in uh, the next uh, little bit of the section, he switches the, the metaphor a little bit. 
at the bottom of page 71, he uses another one of his favorite images, and that's the changing of clothes. And I give you some other passages there where he talks similarly. And he uses changing of clothes to describe the transformation in the believer's lifestyle. So the, the believer is not just putting on clothes, but here specifically, we're putting on armor, right? Which is even better, right? Really good clothes, protective clothes. We're supposed to put on armor, and then he says we're actually supposed to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, quoting here again from Mu, he says, uh, the final exhortation reminds us that we are consciously to embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifested in all that we do and say. So it's a it's a metaphor for becoming more like Christ. He, he's, a, he's a real person, right? He's not just a, an idea. He's not just a force. He is now a man and forever will be a man. But we have in Scripture what he looked like, what he acted like as a man, not look like as in his picture, but look like in his character. And we're supposed to be putting him on. And Jesus himself used strong metaphors, remember? He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. So it's, it's talking about a lasting attachment to him and a gradual transformation of becoming more like him. So I say there at the bottom of the page, our Lord Jesus is not only the model for our lives, the perfect picture of what it means to fulfill God's law, but he's also the means by which our new life is possible and our only hope of rescue when we fail. It is his righteousness that ensures that the Father accepts us. So notice that Paul refers to this coming, or notice why Paul refers to the coming of this day. So these, these passages, when I put them up here, they, they, they always tend to raise questions. It's pretty common when we teach, when we study Scripture. People, I think, have a natural excitement for eschatology, for prophecy, for the future. I think Christians have always been that way. There's just, I'm, I'm the same way, and I find other people to be that same way. But the question is, why should we study it, right? Why does Paul refer to it? And the reason he's referring to it is not just so that we can speculate or make sure that we get our charts correct or what all of those other things that we like to do. It's so that we change our behavior now. The scriptures will frequently point to the end as a motivation for being different today before we actually reach the end. All right, any, any thoughts there? We're going to come to another big break into chapter 14, which is a big topic, but I don't want to uh, cut you off if you had a thought there or a question. All right, well, let's go to chapter 14. So chapter 14 is the pretty famous passage going through chapter 15, verse 13. So that's probably the unit. Probably the chapter break is a little unfortunate. So it probably goes all the way through verse 13. Uh, Paul now begins to address a current issue in the Roman church, which was probably one of his main reasons for writing the letter. So I've, I've probably beat this to death. You've heard me say this several times now, but I think this is probably his main reason, if not if not his main reason, it's at least one of his main reasons. Uh, before we apply his teaching to our own lives and congregations, we have to make sure that we understand Paul's historical context and the situation in the Roman assemblies. 
So we have to make sure we always understand scripture in their world before we bring principles over to our world, right? If we start with our world, we will we'll tend to blur the message and not hear it well. So we have to put on their historical lenses, use their language, their customs, and their culture. There seems to be three separate but related issues that were leading to disagreements in the Roman congregation. So I'll put them up here on a slide so we can see them. So that left column has the three issues. So in verses 2 and 21, there seems to have been a disagreement about food. In verse 5, there seems to be a disagreement about holy days. Verse 21, there's a reference to wine that doesn't seem to be as big as the other two. The other two get more emphasis, especially the food. But then in verse 17, he also refers to eating and drinking. So those seem to be the three issues, food, holy days, wine. There was two groups of people, broadly he refers to them as the one who has, uh, whose faith is strong and the one whose faith is weak. And I deliberately put it that way, the one whose faith is strong and the one whose faith is weak, because that's the type of terminology Paul uses. He's not talking about strong people and weak people. So he's not talking about people with a really firm backbone and those that aren't. He's not even necessarily talking about mature Christians and immature Christians. He's talking about their personal faith, their personal awareness of what would be pleasing to God. He's going to call one of their personal awarenesses strong, the other personal awareness as, as weak. Uh, in the, this particular situation, they seem to break down pretty evenly, so all of the strong agree um, to be more, we could say, liberal or more uh, tolerant in the three choices, where the weak all tend to be more strict or more conservative. So it would be easy for us to think, well, then strong people are all the people with loose standards, and weak people are always the people with strict standards, right? But that's just how it seems to break down in this particular situation. It could break down differently with other topics, and the truth of the matter is that none of us are perfectly always in one column or the other. We, we're all a mixture, right? And we always have people on one side of us or the other, right? There's always going to be people in our church that would look at us, and on a particular issue, we could differ, and we could be either to their left or the right, but we're all going to be different from each other. So what are these particular issues? Let's walk through what Paul actually says. So Paul makes it clear in uh, the bullet point two that he agrees with the position of the strong even if he disagrees with how they've treated the weak. So look at what he says in chapter 14 and verse 14. He says there, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. There's probably at least three things that we could get from that one verse that would be important for this whole passage. The first one is that Paul thinks on these particular issues that he, he sides with the strong. He actually thinks their conscience on these particular three issues matches God's will. So that's the first thing. 
Number two, you can say he says that because he's fully persuaded of it, which is a pretty important phrase. So in order to take one of these positions, a believer has to be fully persuaded. It's their personal awareness of whether or not this would be pleasing to God, right? So it doesn't really matter what other people think. The question is, what are you fully persuaded? What do you think would be pleasing to your God, all right? And number three, you notice that the thing itself is optional, right? Because the same thing he says here that is unclean in itself, he says to another person, um, oh, I'm sorry, the same thing that he says is not unclean in itself, he says to someone else it could be unclean, okay? So let me state that differently in a positive way. Maybe it's easier. So there's going to be things that Paul thinks are clean, things that he thinks are safe, he's able to do, but he's saying that exact same thing for somebody else could be unclean. So he's saying it's right for me to do these three things, but the, that, the exact same things could be wrong for something else, which is kind of an interesting thing. So we have to think through what he means by that. What, what are the positions? Well, if you look down at those columns on, regarding food, the person whose faith is strong in the passage, they eat all kinds of different food, right? But on the other hand, there are other believers, evidently, in the assembly who thought they should eat only vegetables. So that'd be a very restrictive diet. It'd be very hard for me to be in that right position already. It's going to become difficult. On the second issue, there were holy days, and so we've got to figure out what he means by that. But the way he puts it is there's some people in the church who consider each day to be the same. So each day, from their perspective, is just like any other day. There's no, there's no special days. There's no set-apart days. But there were other people, evidently, and they're the same people who only eat vegetables, who believe that there were some days that were supposed to be valued over others. And then on the third issue, the one he doesn't deal with nearly as much, it seems that everyone on the, the left column, just for convenience sake, drinks wine, while those over on the, the right column do not, right? And just before we continue any further, I just wanted to point out this little quote here. So this is from a book by Crowley and Nacelli on the conscience. Anybody familiar with this little book? Just a small little paperback book. 150 pages, something like that. Uh, it's an excellent little book on the conscience, and you'll see it. It'll show up in my footnotes over and over again. Nacelli's name you might recognize because he's one of our recommended textbooks for this class that we've referred to frequently. And they just remind us that here in the church in Rome, they had these three issues. But there's a principle in play that would apply to multiple issues, right, that could confront us as Christians. So let me just read what they say there. They say the disputable matters that concern us today almost never exactly parallel what God or what Paul addresses in this passage. But the principles in this passage directly apply to our time. So we're going to try to understand them first in their world and then think through what principles then would apply to different situations that we might confront today. All right, so we, we dealt with the first sentence of that second paragraph. So Paul clearly agrees with the position of the weak. Therefore, in principle or theologically, Paul agrees that Christians can eat all things, not observe special days, and drink wine. But the, 
the key word there in that sentence is in principle, right? Because the same things that could be right in one situation might be wrong in another. But that does seem to match what he says in other places in Scripture. And I give you the references there. Uh, this also seems to match what he says when he's teaching other Christians about no longer being under the law of Moses. So I think if we compare what he says here to other places in his letters, we start seeing a pattern to this that he's likely referring to something that has to do with the law of Moses. Somehow it's the law of Moses that's getting people into one of those camps versus the other. So therefore, Paul is likely referring to a dispute over the Roman Christians' relationship to the Mosaic law. I think this conclusion, the last bullet point, is supported by Paul's use of the word translated unclean three times. So in that verse I read from verse 14, you notice he used the word unclean, which would have been their way of referring to food the way we would refer to it today. It was, it was not kosher, all right? There was something about it that they considered to be ceremonially unclean. It caused them to not want to eat it. He contrasts that, on the other hand, with clean food in verse 20. Unclean food, or you could say common food, was how a Jewish person would refer to something ceremonially unclean or impure that should be avoided. I think further you can say for sure that the dispute was not over a legalism that distorted the gospel. It was not an attempt to earn God's favor or grace. And as I go on to say in that paragraph, I think you can say that for sure because Paul wasn't a shy person about confronting false gospels. If he knew that in the church in Rome there were individuals that were taking one of these positions because they believed that that position would make them right with God, it would justify them, he would have clearly addressed that, just like he does to the church in Galatians. Here in this setting, I think he, he indicates that both sides are going to be accepted by God. Both sides are actually pleasing to God. Both sides give thanks to God for what they're doing because both sides have a clean conscience before God. Um, if there was any kind of legalism or false gospel in play, Paul would have confronted it. Here in Rome, I'll pick up from the middle of that paragraph. Here in Rome, believers were merely keeping portions of the law of Moses or traditions associated with the law because they genuinely believed that this was pleasing to God, but not necessarily because they believed it was the basis of their justification. So I'll, I'll put that little long definition. So that's my attempt to kind of give a long def definition of what's happening here. So they're keeping portions of the law of Moses, or maybe in order to avoid a specific law, a violation of that, they're keeping traditions that were built around that, that they feel are important or pleasing to God, but they're not necessarily doing that because they believed it was the basis of their justification. I say not necessarily because we never know someone's heart. I mean, Paul doesn't know their heart of all of those people in Rome, right? There could have been some of them that are doing one or the other because they actually thought it would earn God's favor, but they're not saying that. They're not claiming that. Paul doesn't have any reason to believe that's necessarily the, the, the case, and so he doesn't, he doesn't uh, address that. So for some reason, it was difficult to abandon long-standing traditions 
especially when the weak believed God was pleased with the traditions. So what do we know about their historical context? Well, we have evidence that pious Jewish people living among Gentiles would refrain from meat or wine because they feared it was not prepared according to the law standards and or offered to idols, right? So this could have taken various different forms, right? But they could have just known that, hey, this meat came from the market. I don't know how it was prepared. I don't know what it's, what's been done to it. So I'm just going to avoid it altogether. If this is similar to what's going on in Corinth, so that's the other passage in the New Testament where Paul says similar things. You remember there the issue was that the meat was offered to idols. So there were some Christians who were comfortable going to a feast or a banquet and eating the meat because meat was a delicacy. You didn't get meat every day. And they would just ignore the fact that while they were there at the banquet, there were some words said over the meat. There were some ceremonies involved. There was a form of idolatry and paganism. And Paul reminds them, hey, just because there's nothing wrong with eating meat in itself, remember that the idol is actually something. You actually are saying something by being there and participating. So you could see, if you use your imagination a little bit, a Roman Christian not knowing for sure what's happening at the meat market, or if they knew specifically that this had somehow been engaged in some kind of idolatry, just saying, hey, the safer thing is for me just to eat vegetables. I just won't eat meat at all. These would be some Old Testament passage, or one Old Testament passage, right? We have the example of Daniel doing this. So when Daniel goes to Babylon, he believes that the safer thing for him to do is just not eat any of the king's meat at all, all right? So he doesn't bother sorting out, is it beef, <laughs> is it pork, is it shellfish, is it chicken? He just says, I'm not going to eat any of it all, okay? And he just restricts himself to water or vegetables. And Daniel would have been held up as a, as a role model, right? A hero of the faith. These are other Jewish writings. These aren't scripture. These are just other historical documents from the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what they all have in common is that the hero or one of the characters in the story is having the same kind of attitude as Daniel. He's either refusing to eat meat or he's refusing to drink wine because also the wine could be poured out as a libation to a, an idol. It also could be dedicated to idolatry. You got those two passages. They actually embellished the story of Esther, included more details where Esther is refusing to eat food. And then they made up a story about something that happened in Joseph's life when Joseph was in Egypt. Likely none of those are true stories, but it just rep it represents how Jewish people commonly would have been thinking in the first century when Paul, Paul was living, okay? So in that next bullet point, we'll put all this together, and then we'll close for our break. So putting this all together, Moo's conclusion regarding the situation in the Roman church seems correct. And so here I'm quoting from our textbook. He says, Jewish Christians in Rome convinced that the Torah, the law of Moses, was still authoritative for Christians, claimed that a sincere Christian should avoid meat and wine and should observe the Sabbath and Jewish holy days. I think that is the best explanation for the holy days. So they're thinking Passover, tabernacle, dedication, all of the major feasts. So only by following such practices could a Christian avoid ritual contamination and please God. 
These Jewish Christians, however, ended up in a minority in the Roman church, and the dominant Gentile majority thought that such requirements were a ridiculous holdover from Judaism. All right? So we talked way back at the beginning of the class how likely there were circumstances that occurred that caused the church that was originally founded among Jewish people to now suddenly be predominantly Gentile. It doesn't take much of an imagination to see the type of ridicule and scorn that Gentiles in the church could have placed on their Jewish brothers and sisters if they were observing all kinds of strict restrictions that they personally don't believe God has required of them. But both sides are fully persuaded that what they're doing is right and that it's actually pleasing to our God. So I think that's the historical situation. But when we come back from the break, then we have to think through what Paul actually says to both groups and how that could apply to different situations in the church today. All right, so let's take our coffee break. Before we start going through what Paul says here in chapter 14, is that, you know, he kind of tips his hand by agreeing with the one whose faith is strong on these particular issues. So it's pretty easy for us here to look with hindsight and think all those weak people should have changed their mind, right? The one whose faith is weak. But the reality is in our everyday lives in the church, we often don't know which side we're on, right? Uh, And this is the key. Both sides have to be fully convinced that what they're doing is right. And so since we don't really know on which side we are in relationship to God's moral will, uh, that probably means, I think, when I go through this passage, that I have to listen to what he says to both sides, right? I have to make sure that I'm obeying both sides of the situation. Because on any particular situation, I could be wrong about where I'm at. And number two, there's always going to be people on either side of me who differ, and I've got to think through my relationship with them. So I think it would be a mistake to go through what Paul's saying and think that only some of it applies to us, and then the rest of it applies to somebody else. You, know, you wish that they would listen to what he says there, but actually all of us is, are, are encouraged. And we can see a little bit of this in the way he kind of, kind of toggles back and forth, so to speak, with the, the commands, because the opening command, the one that I put first up there is that uh, the one whose uh, faith is strong is supposed to accept the one who's weak. So the command is the strong person needs to accept the weak person. I'll just say strong and weak as shorthand, but you know what I mean by that. But then if you go over to chapter 15 and look down at verse 7, what does he say there? There it's accept one another. You see that? It kind of serves as a bookend to the whole section. And there it's not just the one side accepting the other side. It's both sides accepting each other. Right? So that's where I'm, I'm getting this concept here. I think it's right that Paul wants us to listen to both sides and obey both sides of what he's saying here. So at the bottom of page 73, the strong are to, are to accept or welcome. That's another way you could say that. The weak and stop showing contempt for them. That's the second part of it. They're not supposed to be uh, disdainful or showing contempt. That's pretty clear in this context that when he uses the term judge, he means it in a negative sense. So 
you can be a positive judge, like a judge in a figure skating contest. It, they can be a judge and be positive and get good, good marks. But this is just judging in a negative sense. All right? He means condemn or look down their nose at people. So the opposite expression, except, would include accepting them as members of your church. So at minimum, we would do that. So these are, these are on issues that aren't first level or second level. These are third level. So sometimes we talk about first level issues as being things that all Christians have to believe. Sometimes we talk about second level being things that a local church probably should all agree on because otherwise it's pretty hard to be united. For example, how should we be baptized? Do we baptize children? Do we baptize believers? It's a pretty important second level issue. This is below that. This is pretty third level. So these aren't the types of things that we should limit membership over. But I think he means more than that, right? He doesn't mean, you know, welcome them in as a member, but then treat them badly, you know, ostracize them. Don't allow them into your friend group. You know, don't talk to them. No, you're supposed to be treating them as a family member. So you're actually welcoming them as you would welcome someone into your family. We'll come back to those verses when we get to the other side of this in chapter 15, verse 7. So he initially, after introducing both groups and pointing out that they both have an exhortation to heed, Paul then begins to focus on the weak until verse 10. So he's basically referring to the person who's weak uh, for quite a bit of time. And so his commands that follow at the end of verse 3 and then in verse 4, uh, they have supports or reasons why. And his first one is, well, the weak shouldn't judge the strong because God has accepted them. So there his argument be, would, why would you condemn and not accept a fellow brother and sister if their God has already accepted them? You see how that's a powerful argument? And then his second one is that the strong shouldn't be a judge over his weaker brother and sister. And essentially, if I can paraphrase his point there, it's because they already have a judge. They have a master. We will all, he says to the Corinthians, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an accounting for how we've served him. So we don't need judges in this lifetime. Um, it's pretty clear here that, he, again, he's not talking about first-order issues. Because when you get to the end of his letter, he is going to say that there's people who are heretics, there's people who are causing divisions through false teaching, and we're supposed to mark them and separate from them. So we are allowed to make judgments on those types of issues. But on these particular issues, these matters of conscience, these third-level issues, uh, Paul says, uh, let each person be convinced in their own mind and they will have a judge for whom they have to stand. Uh, he uses here the expression in the middle of that uh, second bullet point there on page 74. He uses that expression, stand, to refer to vindication before the judge. And he uses fall to refer to condemnation. So that's pretty strong language. He's actually referring to uh, Christ's verdict at the final judgment, so to speak. Whether or not this person would be received or condemned. Um, but because, next bullet point, because he's actually addressing genuine believers, he does express confidence that God will see to it that the strong believer does stand and not fall at the final judgment. So he's not really worried about the verdict. 
So the weak person, they're looking at what the strong person is doing in Rome, and they see it as a serious sin, something that they shouldn't be doing. And their, their instinct is to judge them. Uh, maybe go as far as to think this person genuinely isn't a believer. And Paul's point here is that there's going to be a judge who's going to make that final determination. And because Paul believes he's addressing genuine believers, he says, and when the judge makes that determination, it's going to be positive. That the judge himself is able to ensure that they stand because of his own uh, sacrificial death and his sustaining power. So then he switches in verse 5. He talks briefly about the sacred days that we talked uh, about earlier. So skipping to the middle of that paragraph. As with the issue regarding food, Paul clearly believes that the strong's position was correct, but he also doesn't want the weak to sin by violating their conscience. All right, we're going we're to come back to this concept of a conscience. He never uses the word conscience here in Romans. He does in 1 Corinthians, but I think it's pretty clear that that's what he's referring to. All right, so we'll have to define that and talk about it further. But just at this point, I'll say it's always wrong to go against your conscience. If our conscience is off, if it's telling us that something is off and it's, and it's wrong, then we should, as we become aware of that, work to correct it or to calibrate it. But as long as our conscience is telling us that something is right or wrong, you should always listen to your conscience. No matter what, it's always a, a sin. It's always wrong to go against your conscience because your conscience is your own personal awareness of what would be pleasing to God. So as he puts it here, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. He goes on to point out at the bottom of the page that both groups genuinely believed that what they were doing pleased God because both groups gave thanks to God before they ate their food. Isn't that an interesting way of doing it? He's saying that the proof that both of you think that what you're doing is pleasing to God is that before you do it, you give thanks to God, right? If you had a conscience that was bothering you, that was convicting you, you wouldn't stop before you ate your food and give thanks to it. So flipping the page, uh, one of our writers, he's helpfully suggested a, a diagnostic question that you and I could use, right, in order to evaluate whether we are free to do something. So you could ask yourself this question before you do any activity. Can I give thanks to God for this activity? Um, I think if we answer no to that, that means our conscience is going off like a siren. It's telling us that we shouldn't, and that means we should stop. We should actually listen to it. That diagnostic question, next point, is appropriate in all situations because of what Paul says next. So look at verses 7 and 9. He's going to refer to the fact that God has lordship over all areas of life. Let me just read some of that. He says in verse 7, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that we might, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So to summarize that, there's no, there's no neutral areas of life. There's no areas that are off limits for our Lord, for our, our Lord Jesus 
in all areas of life, we have to figure out, we have to be fully convinced of what he wants us to do, right? The decision we come to is likely in many situations going to be different from what our brothers and sisters in Christ come to, but we're not allowed then to just throw up our hands and say it doesn't matter, okay? See how that's different? There's actually no areas of life that don't matter. Everything matters, okay? Nothing is optional. We have to be fully convinced of each situation, but that's not the same as saying that we're all going to reach the same conclusions. All right, verse 10, Paul returns to addressing both the strong and the weak. So he's addressed one, now he's back to both of them. And he says, not only do the strong have a Lord to whom they will answer, but all of us will stand before God's judgment seat and give an accounting for our lives. So it's very similar there, verses 10 through 12, to the passage I quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians. And then in verse 11, he's going to quote from Isaiah 45, verse 23. He says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So how does that uh, specifically uh, address his point? Well, this passage is probably chosen because if you go to its original context, it was always referring to Gentiles standing before God's judgment, right? So to the Jewish Christian in the church, who's looking at their brother and sister who's not keeping the Jewish traditions that they've believed all your life you really should keep if you're pleasing to God. Here he's quoting this passage from the Old Testament to remind them, but yes, that Gentile will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He'll also have to bow before the Lordship of Christ. So allow him and his Lord to settle this between themselves. All right, skipping then to uh, the next paragraph, verses 13 through 23, and he's going to specifically address why this issue is so important, the damage that could come if we don't listen to our conscience, all right? So this section turns the focus to the strong. So the strong, if they're not careful, they could actually damage their brother and sister's conscience. The way he puts it here, they're not supposed to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in their brother or sister's path or to do anything by which their fellow Christian stumbles. I give you a a little bit of a a footnote there about that, but this this is language that we've seen earlier, remember? When he talked about uh, Israel, and he, he talked about them falling and asked the question of whether they, they couldn't come up or whether they would be able to arise again, whether they'd be able to stand. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 uses the same kind of language, this stumbling, this falling language. It's pretty clear there that it's a reference to apostasy. So he's actually referring to you, if you're the strong, who believes that you can do something, you could flaunt that or you could exercise that liberty in a way that would cause your brother and sister in Christ to stumble, to actually have an irreparable fall, to actually abandon their faith. It's actually, it's pretty strong language. He goes as far as to say you could actually destroy your weaker brother and sister, all right? So I think it's pretty clear in this, this passage that stumbling block is parallel to being ruined at the bottom, all right? So what, what potentially could you be doing? 
So first of all, Paul's not referring to merely offending someone, as we might use the word offend today, but is instead speaking of causing someone to abandon the faith, resulting in eternal separation from God. He's talking about the type of stumbling from which you cannot recover. If the weak decide, based on the strong's actions, to stop doing what they believe to be pleasing to God, they are in danger of abandoning their commitment to Christ altogether. And we'll see below why Paul sees this as a possibility. All right, so we're going to come back to that thought in just a second. So verse 14 is the, path, or the section that we read earlier. Paul states his own personal conviction about food. He does not believe that any food is unclean in itself. All right, so to put it simply, Paul could eat bacon without sinning. So you could put a piece of bacon in front of Paul, and if he's in a room by himself, and he's, he's in a vacuum, no one else is around, he says himself he would eat it, right? There's, it's not unclean in, in itself. But he knows that same piece of bacon for someone else, it could be sin. So what he'll say to the Corinthians is that for the sake of the gospel, and also here for the sake of brothers and sisters, I think sometimes he would say no to the bacon, or probably in his day it was more like a piece of ham, right? I don't know if they actually had bacon, right? But a ham sandwich. So the same thing could be right or wrong based on other factors. Right, so therefore, middle of that paragraph, Paul is saying that our own personal convictions regarding something have an impact on whether that action is a sin for us. So how can the same thing be a sin for one person and not another? Well, the difference is that person's view of that thing. That's why he calls it a strong faith and a weak faith. It's their own personal assurance, their own personal confidence of what God wants them to do in that situation. That could differ, and that difference in their thinking is what causes it to change between sin and non-sin. So then I think at this point, it's pretty clear that Paul's referring to the concept that we usually refer to as our conscience. Although he doesn't use the word conscience, he seems to be using that when he refers to the weak being hurt in verse 15. So our conscience is like a smoke detector that alerts us to danger. It does not make something right or wrong, but lets us know when something wrong occurs. And so to uh, skip ahead of here a little bit, so this is again from the, the book by Crowley and Nacelli. They define a conscience as your consciousness, you see what they did there, your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And some important points, it's yours. It won't match others perfectly. So if we, if we represented all of our consciences as like a Venn diagram, none of our circles would perfectly overlap. And if we could overlay God's will, like if we knew what God's will was for every situation, his circle wouldn't overlap with all of our circles. We think it does. We're striving to, to calibrate that way, but it doesn't. We're all inevitably off in some areas. If we knew what they were, we would change if we really wanted to be pleasing to our God. But we don't know in some situations, right? It's not that easy. Number two, it's what you believe, and you may be wrong, right? So here I use the smoke detector uh, illustration. So in my house, there's certain things that will set off the smoke detector that aren't particularly dangerous, like if I'm making toast or if I'm making my frozen waffles, right? It'll go off. And I hear that, that beeping, that siren, right? 
And I've heard it frequently, and I know that all I have to do is go over there and wave at it for a while, and it'll, it'll stop. And so I know in certain situations when it goes off that there's not really a problem. But it would be very dangerous if based on that I just stopped listening to it, right? It would be better to fix the smoke detector, calibrate it somehow, so that it doesn't go off for my toast or for my waffle. But if in the middle of the night I woke up and I heard that, and I just thought to myself, oh, it's probably just waffles and toast again, and I went back to sleep, that could have drastic consequences for me and for my family, right? The smoke detector is a very good thing. That's why you should always listen to it. Even if you think it's wrong, even if you think in some areas it's gonna need to be calibrated, the solution is to work at calibrating it. It's not to just start ignoring it. That's why ignoring our conscience is always a sin, it's always a risk. But then take that a step further, right? If a Christian learns, hey, you know, based on what so-and-so is doing, I should just stop listening to my conscience, right? I should not worry about that. Well, first of all, you've sinned. But secondly, if you continue down that path and always say no to your conscience or always ignore your conscience, it eventually will lead to you just not caring at all what would be pleasing to God. And I think that's why Paul can say, if you keep hurting your conscience or damaging your conscience, it actually could lead to a stumbling. It actually could lead to a brother or sister being destroyed. Does that make sense? That's why it's such a serious thing. So number three, it's always wrong about something. And finally, it's always a sin to go against it. So at the very center of this argument, and I'll, I'll kind of show you what he did here. If we go back to that paragraph and we kind of visually represent it up there, Paul's a pretty careful writer. Him and his secretary may be going back and forth, talking about how they're going to craft this. And they do it so that it parallels, so that the things at the beginning and the end parallel, then the second line parallels with the next to the second line, or from the next to the last line. And the heart of it, his theological point, comes right there in the middle. So let's, let's work through that. He's going to give three reasons why the strong should be careful in exercising their liberty in Christ. So number one, at the bottom of the page, first, it would be unloving to damage the conscience of a fellow believer. This type of action would be against the standard of love. For example, if you ate bacon in front of someone who believed bacon eating was wrong, and your actions led them to violate their conscience, you would be encouraging them to sin. If they believe that eating bacon is sin, and you get them to eat bacon, you now have just got them to sin, right? And why would you do that to a brother or sister who you truly loved? Number two, second, as an inference from the previous reason, believers should not use their liberty, which is a good thing, in such a way that it could be spoken of as evil. So here, Paul's likely referring to the response of unbelievers who see believers living in a manner that contradicts the gospel and then speak evil. Again, we would be unloving if we caused fellow believers to sin by leading them to call evil something good that God has given to his people. So he likely is specifically thinking of unbelievers in this situation. So if they see disharmony and unloving attitudes in the church, it causes them to then speak evil of us and what God has accomplished among us. But also the gift itself, like Paul's right to eat bacon, was a good thing that God allowed him to do. But if he uses his bacon eating 
in a way that hurts his brother and sister, they could call God's good gift something evil. And why would you want to do that to God's good gift? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it calls for wisdom. So let's say, you know, someone walks up and says, you know, I just don't think people should teach wearing flannel shirts, right? I just don't think that that's, that's respectful, right? You should have your shirt tucked in. Yeah, it should be more presentable. You should have a tie on, right? Coat. It's re real-life examples, right? Well, you, you would, you, I would talk to them privately and try to figure out, like, what their, what their position is. Why does this bother them? If I find out in the conversation that they they actually believe it's a sin to wear a flannel shirt when you when you uh, teach, then I would I think based on this passage have to restrict my flannel wearing liberties in order to <laughs> not cause them to sin. I really would have to, right? Because they they are truly saying I I'm fully convinced. So in order for this to fit perfectly, they would have to say I'm fully convinced based on what God's told me, that X is sin, and you're doing X, right? And it would never be right for me to say, I'll just ignore that, right? Because then I'm damaging their conscience. And so for the sake of that brother, I should be willing not to do X or, you know, vice versa. But then your question is, well, what if after that conversation you realize, well, this isn't really about them being convinced it's sin. It just kind of bothers them, right? It just, it's not their preference. Well, then you still, I think out of love for your brother and sister, you could make a judgment there. You could say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit what I know to be right in order to show love to you. But it's going to call for wisdom, right? Because at some point you could have like one person in your group that's trying to get everybody in the group to follow their one preference, right? So that's why when you go through this passage, we have to li listen to both sides of it, right? There's a message in it for, for both groups. And uh, I think when you get into the preference side of it, it's really easy to know the overriding principle. It's you need to love your brother and sister, and you should be willing to limit yourself. That's some of what Paul's going to say here. But the actual applications of that are, are tricky. Anybody else have a thought towards applying that? Yeah. Well, I just, you know, a lot of churches, they forbid drinking uh -huh. wine in their churches. So... I mean, not in their church, that a person would almost have to pledge not to drink wine to become a member of the church. Right. And, um, I mean, I could see no wine in a church event or something like that that could be some, because that would cause maybe somebody in the church to sin. But to forbid it is kind of contradicting what this is saying to me. I mean, they'll eat all the food they want, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But uh, that particular thing, they have a problem with, and, and people can't even be a part of their church if they violate it. Yeah. Yeah, so e each each group of believers is is allowed, I think, based on scripture to come up with its own covenant of how they want to live together as a family. Similar to how each family has its own sets of family rules and 
outsiders from other family groups shouldn't look down their noses or, or judge based on those family. So inside that family, you could, for a variety of reasons, restrict yourself further than you think you need to restrict yourself, right? Because you, you actually believe it's going to be better or loving for someone in the group. So um, I think the other thing I'd say about that, too, is that if you're, if you're very upfront about what everybody in the collective group has agreed to do together, uh, then it's still voluntary if someone from outside the group joins, right? They know, they know from the get-go that this is what we together have decided to do. Um, but, you know, so what Paul says here to individuals, I think also applies to us as groups, right? So you could have, you know, obviously two Christians in the same church who disagree on a on a thing that's a matter of conscience, a third level thing. But you also could have multiple churches where churches disagree from each other, right? So I think the principle would still carry over, right? That each church should view the other church through the lens of this passage. So not, not, not condemning each other, not judging each other, but still welcoming and accepting. It just seems to me like, since it's so specific in the Bible, like Jesus was saying that the Pharisees are adding unnecessary burdens on the law, and he was, you know, he rebuked them for it. Why would, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I get you. I mean, I, I totally agree. I just, my response, and, I, and I'm not trying to just play the devil's advocate, but I'm just trying to articulate what I think this passage is saying, is what seems very clear to me or to you might not seem clear to another person, right? And things that seem really clear to another person sometimes aren't clear to us. So each one of us has to be fully convinced in our mind and at the same time be completely okay with the fact that other people are going to be fully convinced in their mind of something different, right? Because unless it's very clearly stated in Scripture, like, like spelled out, um, which a lot of our practical things aren't, right? More of them are principle-based or wisdom-based. But unless it's clearly spelled out, we're going to have Christians coming to different conclusions, right? So the, I think, well, I mean, let's take the wine example, right? So I think if you'd asked those Jewish people, is, wrong, is, is wine wrong in it itself? Uh, they would have said no, right? They would have been forced to say that, I think, because of all the places in the Old Testament where it refers to different people drinking wine, it refers to it favorably, they would have just said it's wrong in this situation, right? And we don't even know for sure what made it wrong. So it could have been because it was associated with idolatry. Um, it could have been uh, just because it was uh, mixed up in the, in the meat markets with other food that they thought was clean. In a way, I'm stepping out from outside my notes. This is always dangerous, right? It's just me talking <laughs> off the cuff. But it's a good question, right? In a way, I almost wonder if it's better that God didn't tell us the specifics, right? Because since he didn't give us the specifics, it's a little easier for us to apply the principle generally. So what I'm trying to get at is that the thing itself can be right, unclean. I mean, I'm sorry, clean. That's what Paul says. But because of a variety of other circumstances, it's now wrong for a certain person, right? So, so you know, we could be absolutely 
sure that wearing you know, flannel shirts is something that God is allowing us to do, because there's nothing inherently wrong with flannel shirts, but that flannel shirt for somebody else could have a connotation or a connection, or it could lead to some kind of temptation. So I'll use another example. So I grew up in Latin America where people played dominoes, but it was usually to gamble. So the way we use playing cards here, they use dominoes. So just like you could have some Christians who you know I've interacted with, that you know they their conscience won't allow them to use playing cards. You know they'll always use a different type of card game, right? Because to them they know you know gambling is is wrong. At least that's their conviction, right? And so this is associated with gambling, so I can't do that. Well, in Latin America, you'd have people that would come to the same conviction about dominoes, right? So I'm not going to use dominoes. So the playing card and the domino, we would say, in and of itself, is not unclean, right? There's nothing inherently moral about it. And you could make the same argument for wine, but in certain contexts and for certain people, that same thing now could become sin to them, right? So that, that's the types of issues I think we have to think through. Is it's, Yeah, go ahead. My own life, in, uh, as an example, I can't drink. My previous life has taught me that yeah. if I drink, I am going to go off the wagon, and I won't come back, so I can't drink. But if anybody, I went to someone's house and they had a glass of wine with dinner, it's been so many years now, it wouldn't bother me. But if they egged me on, oh, go ahead, you can have just one, you can have just one, mm -hmm. it might just send me back to where I was. Mm -hmm. So to me, I can't drink, and I think it's a sin. Anybody else wants to have a glass of wine with their dinner, I can care less. Yeah. It's me. Right. Yeah, so that, that's your personal conviction. So what you just described there, and I appreciate that, is what Paul's calling faith. So faith in this passage doesn't mean faith in the gospel. Faith in this passage just means your own personal confidence. So you've, you've come to a personal conviction that for you, this is what is pleasing to God. But at the same time, as you just said, for somebody else, they could do it the opposite way, and for them it would be pleasing for God. So in that situation, you've got two Christians who are both fully convinced in their mind of two completely opposite views. And Paul is saying here, you know, to kind of tie this all up, in chapter 15 and verse 7, we're supposed to accept one another. We're supposed to welcome one another. It's not a first-level issue. It's not a second-level issue. It's a third-level issue. If we could see the perfect Venn diagram, <laughs> if we could see what God really wanted us to do, we'd all move towards it. But since we can't, right, since we can't, we're going to have to, on these disputable matters, these matters of conscience, welcome brothers and sisters who differ. And it would always be unloving if we purposely did something in front of or around a brother or sister that caused them to stop listening to their smoke detector. Because one time they're going to stop listening to their smoke detector and it's actually going to be a fire, right? And that's actually very dangerous, okay? If you think your smoke detector's off because you've been studying scripture, then, then calibrate it. You can start training your conscience. But that's a gradual process. So here's a real life example, right? Peter, his whole life has been told there's certain foods you cannot eat. He has never eaten them. And then one day, because he's going to start witnessing and preaching to Gentiles, and it's getting ready to be mealtime, 
uh, God does something for him, right? He has that sheet come down with all that food, and he says, Peter, I want you to eat this, because he's trying to get Peter ready for the Gentile mission. And Peter, I mean, this is like God directly telling him to do it. And he's like, I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. So his, his smoke detector is going off. His alarm bells are ringing. I cannot eat that food. You know, I've never eaten this kind of food. Right? So there you have an example of someone directly being told by God what the right answer was, but they still need time to train their conscience, right? So how much more then for all of those situations where it's not as clear cut? You know, we're going to have to allow lots of time for calibration and adjustment around God's people. Yes, ma'am. Um, I kind of noticed, um, do you think the churches have collectively um, made that decision um, in renting in their facilities, like um, with, with all kinds of things? Is it because people are just so sinfully gotten drunk and made fools of themselves and, and lost view of what's right and wrong? Yeah, so each church for itself has to decide on these um, disputable matters. So I'm not a member of this church, so I don't even know. I honestly, I don't, know I honestly don't even know, and it's probably better that way because then I can talk and not know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, so there, there's a lot of factors, and it's, I think it's helped if we think of ourselves as a family, which is the way we should think of ourselves. And so, you know, the church together, led by their elders, is going to have to decide what they think is best for that family, and then the whole family is together agreeing to abide by whatever that decision is, and there's all kinds of factors. There's, you know, factors, alcoholism, you know, among the church, um, you know, addiction issues, there's going to be uh, testimony issues, uh, what would this look like to unbelievers around us? One of the factors that Christians historically have wrestled with is uh, to what degree is the alcohol we consume today like the alcohol that was consumed in the first century? Has it increased? Has it changed? Um, those are all different types of factors that, that have to be factored in. Yeah. And I'm thankful I don't have to decide. Thankful. Any other thoughts there? Yep. Uh, yes, we, we know it is uh, because Paul doesn't um, get his companions circumcised uniformly. So uh, somebody correct me because I'm doing this off my tongue with head, but it's uh, one of, is it Timothy that is circumcised and Titus he's, it's not, or is it the other way around? Did I get that right the first time? Is it right? Yeah. So the exact same ritual he decides it's right for one man and it's wrong for that. So that's another good example. I'm glad you brought it up. So he would say that it's always wrong if you insist that you have to do it, which is probably a good point. I should have brought that up earlier. So if there was if, if there was a person saying that you have to do this to be right with God, 
Well, that is causing a division in the church, right? And that would be an attack against the gospel. So in situations where Paul was confronting uh, what we call the Judaizers or people that had a legalistic view of Scripture, they were saying you have to be circumcised in order to be justified, he would say absolutely not. He was willing to die for that. But for the sake of interaction with Jewish people and for testimony's sake, he seems to have been willing to do it. So that applies in with his ham eating too, right? If, if he went into certain situations and he knew that everyone there uh, would look down upon eating ham, that that would cause them to think that he disregarded God's law and cause them maybe to start disregarding all of God's law, he was perfectly willing to give up a ham sandwich. Because, and this is probably a good place to, to stop, but look at what he says here in chapter... Uh, 14. Let me just read verses 19. I'll read a few verses and then we'll close. He says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall, all right? And his, his overriding principle is that the kingdom of God is, doesn't really consist in these things. You and I are part of something big. We have the privilege of gathering the constituency, the membership of the future kingdom of Jesus that will last forever. That's what you and I are a part of right now tonight at this church, right? And that's way more important than what we eat or drink. That's Paul's point. So in light of that bigger building project that you and I are involved in, we should be willing to give up all kinds of different foods, drinks, days, whatever you want to fill in the blank, flannel shirts, whatever your thing is, in order to see the kingdom of, of heaven well populated in the future with people from this region. All right? It's a good place to close. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you next week, and we'll, we'll try to wrap this up.